Amen. Just going to ask Reverend Greer now to come and to bring the word of God to us. I want to thank our brother for uh, his welcome and for leading the meeting tonight. Uh, you may realize immediately that I've got a cold and uh, I'll not go to the door tonight to shake hands <coughs> uh, just to be courteous and not put people under the spot in terms of if they want to shake his hand or not, so I'll not do that. But uh, value your prayers. This thing just hit me really uh, late last night and into the morning. And so I trust the Lord will undertake tonight. It's good to be here again, and we trust and pray that God will come among us and touch our hearts as we wait at his feet around his own precious word. And so please take your Bibles and let's turn again to Ezra. And I want to read a passage in chapter 4, and just the first part of this chapter. Ezra chapter 4, I'm reading from verse number 1. Down to verse 6. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the children of the captivity built at the temple unto the Lord God of Israel, then they came to Zerubbabel and to the chief of the fathers and said unto them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as ye do, and we do sacrifice unto him since the days of Ezer Haddon, king of Asher which brought us up hither. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the chief of the fathers of Israel said unto them, Ye have nothing to do with us to build an house unto our God. But we ourselves together will build unto the Lord God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, hath commanded us. Then the people of the land weakened the hands of the people of Judah, and troubled them in building, and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even on to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, wrote they unto him an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. And we know the Lord will bless the reading of his word to our hearts. Now, can we just bow together and let us pray and let's seek the Lord's help. Our Heavenly Father, we come unto thee again in the name of thy Son. We bless thee for the great privilege of bowing before the true, the living God, the God who in himself dwells in light unapproachable and yet has made a way of access that we who are but guilty sinners are privileged to draw near to Thee and commune with Thee. We thank Thee for the one mediator, our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank Thee for all the merit and value of His finished work. Lord, we come pleading the work of the Lord. We have none of our own to present to Thee. We pray, Lord, that Thou wilt hear us for Jesus' sake and touch us tonight. Give help from heaven in every fashion, in every sense, we pray, Lord, that thy dear people here, those who join with us online, will be blessed, that every heart will now be prepared, and thou wilt come alongside. Lord, give help to the preacher. Cleanse me from every spot, every stain. Fill me with thy spirit. 
and come and breathe on us now from the throne of God above. Lord, hear prayer, do a work tonight. Glorify thy Son. We ask this in his name and for his eternal praise. Amen and amen. Now, the theme of this book, as we have been putting to you, is revival. In these early chapters of Ezra, there's a clear development of that theme. In chapter 1, we have really an awakening that preceded the return from Babylon. There we read of the Lord stirring up various hearts in order to bring about the departure from Babylon and the return of God's people to their own land. In chapter 2, then, we have the assembly of the people of God who left Babylon and gathered in Jerusalem. And chapter 3, as we saw last night, we have the accomplishment that furthered the return from Babylon, namely in the rebuilding of the altar and the laying of the foundation of the second temple. When we move now into chapter 4, we find that a time of adversity uh, comes upon the people of God. The warning indicates this. In chapter 4, the atmosphere changes with opposition to the work emerging in those words in verse number 1, the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin. And then the chapter proceeds to describe the adversity that was raised by the enemies of the work of God. Now, it's very, very clear as we read these words in verse 1 that these adversaries were already in place. They didn't become adversaries after the Lord's people came to the land of promise again out of Babylon. They already were adversaries. And we'll see more about that as we go through this study this evening. Opposition to what the Lord was doing was already entrenched in their minds. Obviously, the Lord in His grace and mercy had restrained them until this point in chapter 4 in the early sections and the early developments that we find in all that God was doing. There was a restraining hand upon these men who were the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin that gave time for the initial work to develop and to be established. That, of course, is God's pattern. When the Lord works, when the Lord moves, when He begins a new work, when He sends a breath from heaven, He will guard it, He will foster it, He will shield it from the attack of the enemy. But eventually, that attack comes. Therefore, the opposition described in this chapter was not some social disagreement. I mean, the entire episode is to be understood as a, a definite battle between God and Satan, between light and darkness, between truth and falsehood. This event is a clear example of the gates of hell, the powers of, of the kingdom of the devil seeking to wreck and to destroy the work of God. When revival comes, there will be a demonstration of the reality of Satan's power as is never seen at any other time. Remember one time speaking with Dr. Alan Kearns, the late Dr. Kearns, and he said this to me. He said, if God sent revival tomorrow, then we would really see what Satan is like. And that's true, and we see it being brought before us in the whole narrative 
that unfolds as we come to chapter 4. You see, nothing angers Satan more than a people giving themselves heart and soul and mind to the work of God. Last night in chapter 3, we looked at this uh, company of people who were seeking and standing and singing together unto the Lord. We saw that in chapter 3, the word together is used three times, and we built the message around that. God's people seeking together. God's people standing together. God's people singing together. And as they did so, it was inevitable that opposition would arise. And now this chapter details something of that opposition. The devil has various forms of opposition that he will employ against the work of God, and he will choose the one that he deems to be most suitable for the accomplishment of his goals. In this case, in the chapter before us, his initial effort was to hinder the work of God by making what we may call overtures to the Lord's people. He did not manifest himself at this time as the roaring lion, raging against the Lord's work, but rather he came as the devious, crafty old serpent that he really is, and he attempted to accomplish his goals through subtle overtures, as we find brought before us in some of these verses. An overture, when you know the word, an overture is introductory to something that follows. And in the spiritual realm, the devil does employ the overture, the tactic, the curtain raiser, as it were, uh, but always meaning uh, to move on from there to do something else or to work in some even more forceful way to oppose the work of God. And so tonight I want to come to look at this chapter with you, and that's the subject for tonight, Satan's Overtures in Days of Revival. The first point I want to bring to your attention is the reason for these overtures. And you see it there in verse number 1. Just look at that verse again. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the children of the captivity builded the temple unto the Lord God of Israel, then they came. And you can see the development of thoughts there. When we consider those words, it will be noted that the attention of the enemy is uh, brought to bear upon what is happening because they notice the people of God and they are building the temple unto the Lord God. And it was precisely then that these adversaries who were lying in wait, who were already there in the land, began their move and came to make their overtures, as we are going to see toward what was uh, the people of God and what was going on. The attention of the enemy, therefore, was upon both the people, that is God's people, and the project. So look with me how this develops as we consider this point of the reason for these overtures. The people, take the people, the people of God, in other words, they are described in verse 1 as the children of the captivity. And that's a very important little phrase. There are two thoughts that lie in that phrase. There is the state of these people, or their former state to be precise. They are referred to as the children of the captivity. The word for captivity, well, you could understand what it means. It's a reference to the captivity that was 
brought upon them when they were taken to Babylon. The word captivity means exile, it means removal, or it means actually transportation. And so the phrase therefore can be read this way, the sons of the exile, the children of the transportation. The reference is to the original transportation of the Jews in Nebuchadnezzar's times, taking them to Babylon and into that period of captivity in that city and in that particular place. And therefore, those who returned, I mean, noted this last night, those who returned, that company was comprised of some who had originally gone to Babylon and then the children who were born in Babylon. I showed you the other night a verse in Jeremiah where the Lord actually told Israel or told his people when they went down to Babylon to live there in that city and to uh, marry and to have children and to tend their work and so forth. We saw that the other evening. And so there are those who come back who were both exiled at the time of the, uh, the captivity and then children who were born in captivity. But that's their name, the children of the captivity. We can learn something from that tonight. That is that Christians are the offspring of mankind who has gone into exile from God because of his sin. See, that's the state of the whole human race, just to take it this way. The whole human family, because of the fall of man, because of apostasy from God at the very beginning, was transported into bondage because of that sin and has been held and still is held in spiritual and moral captivity. That's the pedigree of every succeeding generation of mankind. And you know, parents here tonight and grandparents as well, we need to recognize that. We have passed to our seed the state of bondage because of the sin that we ourselves were guilty of and were found in through our natural generation, from Adam right down to the present day, parents have been passing on to their children a fallen nature, a depraved heart. And therefore, we with our children are the children of the captivity. We are the sons of transportation caused by the fall of man and the entrance of sin into the world. Think with me of what Paul says in Romans 5. If you'll turn quickly to Romans 5 and just look at a, a few verses there, you will notice very, very salient and important language. Romans 5 verse 12, Paul says this, he writes this, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world. Notice that. This verse takes you back to the fall. It describes the fall. It tells us that by one man, and that one man who's mentioned a little later down, in, or actually back in chapter 4 and also in chapter 5, is Adam. By one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. That latter part of verse 12, for that all have sinned, is a reference to the one sin of Adam. And what we've been shown here is that Adam, who was our federal head and representative, 
when he was brought into existence by God and he stood in the garden and he was put under that command of God, we were in Adam. We were represented by Adam. And furthermore, we sinned in Adam and we fell with Adam. And the proof is that ever since we are guilty of Adam's sin and we've inherited from Adam a fallen nature. That's what Romans 5 verse 12 is specifically teaching. If you go on down this chapter to verse 17, it says, if by one man's, or we could read it this way, since by one man's offense, that's Adam again, death reigned by one. Verse 18, therefore as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Now thank God in this chapter, we will see this a little more in other ways tonight, you also have Christ in Romans 5. There are two men in Romans 5. There are two representatives in Romans 5. There's Adam, the first Adam, and there is the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's called the last Adam in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 45 because there's none after him. He's the last Adam. He's the one who did what was necessary to reverse the fall, to bring us out of captivity, out of the bondage of our sin. But let's get it into our minds tonight, my friend. We can sum it up with the words of David in Psalm 51, 5, where he says, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So there's the state of the whole human race. You see it reflected here in this phrase, the children of the captivity. We're looking at a people who were in bondage because of their sin. It is a reminder to us of the state of mankind. It's a reminder to us of every form of spiritual bondage and captivity uh, that prevail at any given time in this old world, even within the church of God. Oh, brethren and sisters, there are times when our sins as God's people bring us into bondage, bring us into captivity. We need to recognize this. So there is their state. But then you see there is their salvation. As we think here about the people, uh, their salvation because they were delivered from that former state. And it tells us here in chapter 2, verse 1, uh, these wonderful words about these people who are the, uh, go back to chapter 2, verse 1, and notice the language there. It's very relevant of what we're seeing. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Now, these are the children of the province that went up out of the captivity. The very same word. Of those which had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. But the point is, they come up out of their captivity. They were released from their bondage. We've been shown here that the child of God, the people of God, we are delivered. We have been set free. We are transported out of or translated out of the kingdom of Satan. This is what's going on here. This is the spiritual sense of what we're seeing here tonight about these people. A people who have been in bondage, but then the Lord brought them out. He did that of the Exodus. Israel down in Egypt, in bondage there. 
And remember what the preface to the Ten Commandments is, where the Lord speaks to those who were brought out of the house of bondage and out of the land of Egypt. And then he gives to them his law as a redeemed people for them to keep and to follow. And you remember tonight that God's people are a delivered people, brought out of bondage, out of captivity, and we have become... Therefore, God's people set free from the power of sin, as Paul describes it in Acts 26 and verse number 18, where he says this, He was sent to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan unto God. Or Colossians 1 verse 13, where he writes that God hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. Truly, believers are the sons of the transportation. We were once in bondage to the devil and to sin by our fall, by natural generation, by the transmission of a fallen nature, And we lived in that state and in that whole set of circumstances until we became the sons of the transportation. The night you were saved or whenever, whatever time of the day it was, the Lord transported you. The Lord brought you out. That means that Satan rages against us. Because we were his captives. These people were captive in Babylon and the devil had his way, so to speak. And yet now they're brought out and they're seeking to do a work for God and immediately they are the target of Satan's attack. There's nothing new in what I said to you tonight, but we need to be reminded of this. We need to realize just who we are, what we were and know who we are in Jesus Christ. Therefore, do not be surprised when the devil moves against the people of God and the work of God. So there's the people here, but also there is the project. They were building the temple unto the Lord. That's what it says there in verse 1. The enemies heard, the adversaries heard that the children of the captivity build at the temple unto the Lord God of Israel. And so here we find that those who were former captives to Satan, to darkness, to sin, to bondage, are now engaged in the service of God. A redeemed people serving the Lord. You see, and see it from this angle, such a people are a threat to the devil. That's how Satan views us. We are a threat to his plans, his purposes, to his kingdom, to all that he's endeavoring to do. Because these folk were building the temple unto the Lord God of Israel to be a center of worship, a place of teaching and preaching and the work of God to be done there. And they were therefore involved in a project that was the very antithesis of what the devil believes and what the devil promotes. And friends, that's the nature of the work of God. We never should be surprised when the devil comes somehow or other, one way or another, to attack the work of God. We should never be surprised when he stirs up adversity, when he brings his 
uh, those who are under his control against the people of God one way or the other. We should never be surprised at the sinfulness yet of our own hearts, causing us problems, causing us difficulties, causing us to grow cold and backslidden. Don't be surprised at that because there's an enemy who's out to use every means that he possibly can to hinder your spiritual life, to disrupt your walk with God, to prevent you from serving the Lord because you are a threat to the devil. But you may not think about it that way, but it's true. The devil feels threatened by the people of God as they labor and they pray and they toil and they evangelize and they seek to do the work of God in his own particular way, God's way, they will feel, the devil feels threatened by that, so he will move against the Lord's work. The temple, you see, that we're looking at here, they're building the temple of the Lord. And there's something very precise that I want you to notice here, and I want to say it. The temple and its form of worship was a presentation of the gospel and the exclusiveness of the gospel. Notice that word exclusiveness. It's not in the text directly or in a written form, but it's there by inference. This is why the devil hates the gospel. You see, the temple, and we'll see this in a moment or two, the temple and its whole system of worship was a gospel form that was being set forth. The temple had a priesthood. The temple had sacrifices. The temple had a whole form of worship that was a, a, a presentation of the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the whole work of Jesus Christ or the gospel of Jesus Christ is marked by exclusiveness. And it's important that you and I grasp that issue of the exclusive nature of the gospel. The gospel is not only the message of God's way of salvation, but also the declaration of the exclusiveness of God's method of grace. In other words, there is no other way for men to be saved. And that's why the devil hates the gospel so vehemently and with such a wicked intent. Because the gospel presents to men, this is the only way. And that the devil hates. And his emissaries hate it. As I will show you now in a moment or two. But let me just remind you of something. In that temple in, in Jerusalem when it was built, there was a functioning priesthood. There was a family from which the priests came, the high priest and all the ordinary priests, as we might call them. What was God teaching by that? He was teaching the gospel truth of one mediator. That's what was been taught. You know 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God, and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. There you have it. One God, one God who has been offended and insulted by our sin. But we rejoice that he's a God of grace. 
And he sent forth his Son, who took our humanity, because he's called in that verse the man Christ Jesus, all in order to become the one mediator. And that is a fundamental tenet of the gospel. It rests upon the Lord's person as the God-man. But that's exactly who Jesus Christ is. He is the God-man. And don't be afraid of using that name or that title for the Lord Jesus. God-man, God and man, two distinct natures and one person forever. That's our Savior. But let me tell you, friends, that doctrine of the one mediatorship of Jesus Christ is a fundamental to the whole gospel. But not only that, it's a truth that excludes every other pretended mediator. That's why the gospel is because the gospel tells all false religions that their mediators are not only false, but they're useless. And they are useless. We are a Reformed church. Our forefathers came out of Rome. What was their battle? It was just this. And all that revolves around it one mediator between God and men. Let me tell you, that battle needs to be fought today just as it had to be fought at the Reformation. It's always under attack. That's why the adversaries were here attacking these people with their overtures because they were building an edifice and reestablishing a system of worship that taught this truth, that there's only one mediator. All that was done there by the priest pointed forward to the blessed Son of God. And remember who He is. He's the eternal Son, co-equal, co-eternal with the Father, of the same substance as the Father. But He stepped into time and He took your humanity. He became the God-man all in order to save you. See, my dear friend, no one can save us but a person who is both God and man. And that's why the priests of Rome cannot save their people. They tell them that they can, from the Pope right down. That's why we stand against Romanism. But all other false religions have their priesthoods and so forth and their mediators and all the rest of it, but they are nothing but empty charlatans who can do nothing for their adherents, and those who worship in such systems. Not only one mediator, but the whole temple worship, what they're doing here, building this temple, that whole temple system also taught one atoning sacrifice. One atoning sacrifice. It pointed forward to Jesus Christ on the cross. Every time a bullock, ram, a lamb was brought to the, this temple as it would have happened afterwards when it was finished and was slaughtered and its blood was shed, every time the message was going out, one atoning sacrifice, pointing into the future. And these people who were believers, who were resting 
for their salvation in Jesus Christ were taught the gospel that way. They were taught about the one mediator. They were taught about the one atoning sacrifice. And therefore, they were being taught the great truth that the Lord's work for sinners is an exclusive work. In other words, the declaration of Scripture in relation to the Lord's sacrifice is that it and it alone secures forgiveness, peace with God, cleansing from sin. That is fundamental. That is what the gospel is all about. That's how you sum it up. One mediator, one atoning sacrifice. And every other strand of gospel truth revolves around those two particular facets of truth. One mediator, one atoning sacrifice. In those two points, the gospel is encapsulated, revealing its exclusive essence. And that's why Christ says in John 14, 6, a verse that we teach our children in the Sunday school or wherever, and rightly so, where the Lord says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man, this is without exception, this is utterly exclusive, no man comes unto the Father but by me. Now, brethren and sisters, that is why Paul refers in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 11 to what he calls the offense of the cross. This is what offends proud man and empty religion. Man in his pride thinks that he should be given a place in his own salvation. And empty religions, also imbued with the same pride, they believe that they have a role, they have something to offer. Uh, follow their paraphernalia, follow their ritual. It will add merit to your standing with God, whatever they say or whoever they worship. And therefore, what I am showing you tonight is utterly reprehensible to those religions. That's the offense of the cross. The word offense there in Galatians 5.11 means stumbling block. When these adversaries of Judah and Benjamin saw this temple, the foundation laid and, and the work going on, they looked on it as an offense, a stumbling block, because it stood in the way of their false religion, of what they believed. Now, we'll deal with that a little more uh, here shortly. But they were offended by that. And it's still the same men are offended by the, the gospel's exclusive essence. It gives no place to man's works. Therefore, men stumble over it. Remember the word offense means a stumbling block. This is a stumbling block to their minds, to their religion, to their way of thinking. And therefore, they stumble over the gospel. My friend, the tragedy is stumble over the gospel and you'll end up in hell. Because that's where false religion takes its devotees. It takes them all down to hell because they stumble over the gospel of God's grace. And so we're looking here at the reason 
for these overtures that we're now going to see a bit more of as we move on here. And I want to take you to that now, the revelation in these overtures. Notice what you have there in verse number 4. Then the people of the land weakened the hands of the people of Judah and troubled them in building. Just notice those who were the proponents of these overtures. The overtures are mentioned uh, in verse 2. Let me just read that verse with you now. Then came they to Zerubbabel and to the chief of the fathers and said unto them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as we as ye do. And we do sacrifice unto him since the days of Ezra Haddon, king of Asher, which brought us up hither. Here are their overtures. It's in those words, Let us build with you, because we seek your God, and we sacrifice to your God. There are their overtures. But who are these people? That's why I read verse 4. The people of the land. Who are they? Well, they tell us in verse 2. They are a people who are the descendants of those who were brought many hundreds of years before by Ezra Haddon, king of Asher. He brought them up hither. Turn quickly to 2 Kings 17 and verse 24. And notice what it says there. 2 Kings 17, 24. And we read these words, the king of Assyria brought men from Babylon and from Kutha and from Ava and from Hamath and from Sepharvaim and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel and they possessed Samaria and dwelt in the cities thereof. And so in that particular verse, you read of a former time when a certain king of Asher or Assyria brought these people into the land of Israel. They placed them in the area that had been dwelt in by the ten tribes who were carried away into captivity. And these are the progenitors of those whom we read about in the New Testament called the Samaritans. Here's the origin of the Samaritans in 2 Kings 17. Look in that same chapter at verse 32, 2 Kings 17, 32. So they feared the Lord and made unto themselves of the lowest of them priests of the high places, which sacrificed for them in the houses of the high places. They feared the Lord and served their own gods. There is a very important little statement. They feared the Lord and served their own gods. The Samaritans had a religion. It was a mongrel religion. It was a mixture of truth and error. And you see it coming out here. They made unto themselves priests, but they were from the lowest of the people. They were not qualified at all for this office. And then here is it really summed up. They feared the Lord. They served their own gods and therefore, they were a people with a religion that was a mixture of truth and error. And let me tell you, those people who follow a religion that's a mixture of truth and error are essentially the worst enemies of the church of God and the work of God that can ever um, emerge. If you go back to Ezra, and notice chapter 3, verse number 3. I didn't focus on this verse last night very much, but just look at it now. Uh, chapter 3, verse 3, it says, They set the altar upon his bases. I made the point that 
the foundations of the altar were still there, even though all this damage had been done away back at the time when the temple was destroyed, when Solomon's temple was destroyed. They couldn't destroy the foundations. They were still there. And they built this altar on that very spot. Then it says this, For fear was upon them because of the people of those countries. See, God's people knew that the Samaritans were opposed to the divine system of religion, and they had a fear of them. And so we're told here that they set up the altar and they offered burnt offerings thereon, verse 3 of chapter 3, unto the Lord, even burnt offerings morning and evening. What are they doing? They are sheltering themselves beneath the truth of the gospel. That's what they're doing. They're, they're offering their sacrifices with an eye to Christ, and they're realizing our only protection is the blood. My dear friend, we need to get back to that. In church after church today, I mean evangelical churches, there is very, very little preaching on the blood of the Lamb, very little focus on the atonement. But the blood of Jesus Christ is the answer not only to our sins in terms of our own personal needs, it's the answer to the devil and the powers of darkness. And that's what these people are doing. There's a fear on them. They're in the midst of their enemies. They build their altar. They make their sacrifices. They shed the blood because they know they're in among a people who hate the atonement and hate their way of religion, as I've already been showing you. Anyhow, these is who, this is who is meant here in chapter 4, the people of the land. It's the Samaritans with their mixed religion, a mixture of truth and error. And notice the words of the Samaritans back there in chapter 4, verse 2 again. It says, We seek your God as ye do, and we do sacrifice unto him. The Samaritans, this is their argument for inclusion. We want to help you. We want to work with you. They're very nice, you know. They come in this manner. It all sounds great. But you see, they're presenting as their argument the fact that, well, we, we have a system of worship just like yours, and, and we make sacrifices too. And actually, when you study this all out, you will find the Samaritans, they had a temple. They had a priesthood. They offered sacrifices. Do you remember the woman at the well? John 4. And whenever the Lord confronted her about her sin, what did she do? She appealed to her religion. Our fathers have worshipped in this mountain. And she goes away back to the days of Ezra Haddon, to 2 Kings 17. She's saying, we've an ancient religion, you know. It's been there for a long time. And we worship God and, and we sacrifice in our temple and, and all of that. Uh, in other words, they had a priesthood. They had a place of worship. They had a temple. They had all these things. They had their sacrifices. And that's why they can come now and say, let us build with you. These are the proponents of these overtures. They're, they're trying to make out that we're just the same as you. That's the great cry today. Everybody's the same. So long as you believe something, it doesn't matter what you believe. It may be the greatest lie on the face of the earth. But mingled in with it, there may be a little truth. That's why it's so dangerous. And the cry is, you know, we're all, we're all children of God. We're all going the same direction. 
We're all going to be in heaven. It doesn't really matter how you get there so long as you believe something and you're very sincere about it. Ah, my dear friend, the devil hasn't changed his tactics, has he? He comes against the people of God with his overtures and it's all very plausible. It sounds great. And that's how they try to enhance and uh, promote their efforts. But you see, all the while, they are working to undermine the gospel. If we take the whole realm of ecumenism, which is still very real, it has progressed now until it's almost unrecognizable from what it used to be when I was a young fellow. And that wasn't yesterday. And back in those days, it's all black and white. Popery, apostate Protestant churches, and that was about it. But today, you know what it's called now? It's not called ecumenism anymore, really. It's called syncretism. Let's all work together. And we have all these overtures now being sent forth just like that. We've all got to worship together and come together because we all believe in the same God, etc., etc. And so they come to these people with their overtures and they present this idea that I've just gone over here. They, they sought a foothold by claiming to be worshipers of the true God. Now, if the Lord's people here had bought into that subtle claim. If they had accepted them as worshipers of Jehovah, then they would have had no option but to let them join in the building of the temple. And that is the outcome in various areas of the professing church. Professing evangelicals working hand in hand with liberals and with the church of Rome, and even in places with pagan and heathen religions, and therefore they get into a trap because they have bought into the lie that they're all worshiping the same God and their genuine brother, and therefore they have to be accepted. You see, our stand at the very beginning, I mean, of our little denomination, it is the same stand. It's actually even a more dangerous day now in which we live. As I said there earlier, a few minutes ago, back then things were very black and white. Now it's fudged and it's deceitful. And therefore these men come with their overtures. Their purpose is to infiltrate. They want to work from within they want to destroy what's being done here. Remember what they're called in verse 1, the adversaries. That's their nature. That's what they're up to. They're there to destroy what God and his people are doing. The Holy Spirit gives them their real identity. They are enemies of the work of God. So we've looked at the reason for their overtures. we looked at the... Uh, the, this point here about the revelation of the overtures. Then I come to this tonight as I draw near to a close. We have the rejection of these overtures. Verse 3. Toward the center of the verse, here's the answer that comes from God's men. Ye have nothing to do with us to build a house 
unto our God. But we ourselves together will build unto the Lord God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, hath commanded us, a declaration that there would be no affiliation with those who were the adversaries of God's work. What is verse 3? It's a declaration of the path of separation. Look at the mandate of the separatist. The latter, word, the latter words there are toward the end of the verse 3. It says, We ourselves together will build us or build on to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, hath commanded us. That's an important little reference. If you just turn back quickly to chapter 1, and notice what Cyrus actually said when he gave the uh, decree for God's people to leave Babylon. Look at verse 2, chapter 1, verse 2. Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. And you know, brethren and sisters, you can... You can hear something there of Christ ringing through. Christ is the one who is king of all nations. And Christ's great commission in this world is to build the house of God. In other words, the church of God. And so when you come to chapter 4, verse 3, you will find here that the mandate of the separatist is we have been commanded by our God to build the Lord's house. It's according to his decree. It has to be done in his way and according to his gospel and under the headship of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we reject the overtures of those who would come along and want to have us engage in worship that is a compromise so there's the mandate of the separatist. Look at the ministry of the separatist. They say, we ourselves together will build on to the Lord. There's their ministry. It was to build a new work for God and to pursue that work. And then the mark of the separatist. Look at those words in the center of verse 3. Ye have nothing to do with us to build an house unto our God. They refuse to work with the enemies of God, His truth, the gospel. They just refused. Why? Because they weren't the Lord's people. Now, we have no problem working with other good men or good Churches who are standing for the Lord, don't misunderstand me. But this same path has to be taken as we see it unfolded before us here. You'd think this was New Testament language, but here it is right in the Old Testament, laying out the whole rejection of the overtures of the enemies of the gospel and doing so on the ground of separation. My friend, there's a very real reason why, a very important reason why that path alone must be followed. And that is this, that this path secures the purity of the gospel as much as we are able to secure the purity of the gospel. You're not going to secure it if you compromise with the enemies of the truth. And therefore, it's when the Lord's people refuse to enter this compromise situation that the people of the land came out in their true colors and revealed 
how they really thought about what was happening. You see, Zerubbabel and Joshua, they were suspicious brethren. They didn't trust these fellows, rightly so. They were alert. And now the mask of deceit is torn away. And you'll notice what these same boys who said in one hand, you know, we're just like you. We want to worship God with you. We, we worship the same God and so on and so on. And they were resisted. They were rejected. And what did they do then? Then, as I say, their true colors come out. Look at verse 4. They adopted the method of intimidation. Then the people of the land weakened the hands of the people of Judah and troubled them in building. Does that... Does that indicate friendship? Does that indicate that they were true brethren? No, not at all. They're now intimidating God's people. They are trying to weaken their hands. They're troubling them in their building. And then look at verse number 5. Here's their frustration coming out. They hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. I mean frustration in the sense that they're trying to frustrate God's people. And then in verse number 6, you've got accusation. In the, begin, in the reign of Hazuerus, in the beginning of his reign, wrote they unto him an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and, and Jerusalem. And when you read on, you find that this accusation, there wasn't one shred of truth about it. It was a false accusation that they were bringing against the people of God. And then there was misrepresentation. From verse 7 down to verse 16, I can only mention these things here as I come to a close. In those verses, they allege that the Jews were rebuilding the city, and yet it wasn't the city they were building. It was the house of God. It was a lying misrepresentation. It's a mark of Satan's method. Always. He is a liar and he is the father of lies. And he will use all of these ploys, this intimidation, frustrating the Lord's people, all of this. He'll use it always against the work of God. But you see, when they took their stand and they rejected the overtures of the enemy, the overtures of Satan, God blessed them. And the temple was built and finished and became a center of worship and for the glory of God, the honor of his name. This little book is very relevant, isn't it? It's very up-to-date. It shows to you and me tonight the work that needs to be done. And that work can only be done as we look away to the Lord and we get grace and help and power and strength by His Spirit in our hearts, in our meetings, in our gatherings, praying, waiting, crying to God for revival, for a moving of the Spirit. And may the Lord come tonight and bless His Word to us and help us as we think about and meditate on these verses, these, these thoughts that are here, and may it be used to stir up our minds tonight and lead us on with God. Let us just bow in prayer as we come to a close, and may the Lord's word 
be written upon every one of our hearts. Our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for Thy Word that has all the answers in it to what we need in our day and time. Lord, we pray that Thou wilt help us to, to have that mind, that heart that is focused on Thy truth, and may we learn from the Scriptures. May we be strengthened by Thy Word. May we realize that to follow Thee in Thy ways is the right way, and is for Thy glory, for Thine own everlasting praise. So, Lord, bless this congregation. Bless all of our churches in these days. Bless others of like mind and like precious faith. And Lord, help us in a dark day, a wicked day, when all of Satan's overtures are very much still in vogue and, and are being thrust against thy children. O oh Lord, help us, we pray. Give us wisdom. Give us discernment. Give us grace. Abide with us this night. Bless us in the final two nights in thy will. May the Holy Spirit of God come down. May thy grace be given to us. We pray this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.